So in this episode that we're going to be playing here in a couple seconds, I get the pleasure to interview my beautiful friend, Nicole. She is a lawyer and an activist from San Diego, California. And she was diagnosed with stage one triple negative breast cancer at age 34. And now she works with a nonprofit raising awareness for early detection in the young and adolescent population. So as you can imagine, we covered a lot in this podcast episode. We talked about, you know, her story, how she was diagnosed at such a young age, what that meant for her, what happened during that time. Uh, We talked about family genetics and how they play a role in cancer. We talked about early detection, of course. Um, Some of the most important aspects you have control over during a cancer diagnosis. We touched on brain rewiring, what it is, how it works, and how it can impact cancer. And last but not least, we covered how to have conversations around asking for support and so much more. You're listening to the What's With Cancer podcast. This is your host, Mazina, and I'm a certified health coach, life coach, breathwork facilitator, as well as my mom's caregiver. When my mom was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer back in 2019, the doctors told us she probably wouldn't live past two years. But I wasn't willing to give up that easy, and I started learning and implementing absolutely everything I could find out from other people that survived this disease. After seeing my mom go through the ups and downs over the years and successfully outliving her prognosis, it made me realize that there's so much more to learn about this and there's so many unanswered questions. And I wanna know, what's with the industry telling us that there's no cure when there's been thousands of people that have overcome a terminal diagnosis? What's with the conflicting information that's presented to us about treatment, diet, and lifestyle? And lastly, what comes with a diagnosis? How do we manage the day-to-day things, the hard conversations, the stress, and our social life whenever our entire world has completely changed? There is nothing worse than feeling helpless, overwhelmed, and lost whenever it comes to a serious diagnosis like cancer. And it is my mission to share stories of hope, insight, and truth to help guide you through the unknown times. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you find value in the show. Welcome, Nicole, to the podcast. You are such a dear friend of me, mine. Um, I met you. When did I meet you? 2020? Yeah, I think it was 2020. And we were in, well, my mom actually joined a brain rewiring group with you and you were one of the members. So we have been connected for a long time. We've stayed in contact. We've met in person, which is so cool because you're down in San Diego. So I just think that's amazing, but you have this phenomenal story and yeah, I'm just going to give you the floor to share your story and how cancer has showed up in your life. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, As you mentioned, we've just had such a beautiful relationship and connection and I love you and your mom to death. And it was such a joy to meet you in person and spend some time with you before you went on to your beautiful journey in um, Tijuana or in south of the border, Tijuana. Um, But yes, so I was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 34. And at the time I was under a lot of stress. Um, I'm an attorney in San Diego and I had also taken over leadership in a nonprofit. And even though I felt fulfilled. It was just a constant um, weight on my shoulders of stress and expectation. And so I almost felt like it was no surprise 
when I got the diagnosis because it's like, well, of course, I'm in the most stressful period of my whole life. I'm carrying it in my body. I'm not doing any self-care. And it, oddly enough, it seemed to just come at the right time. Everything was starting to slow down and the universe is telling me, you need a break. And literally the only way that you're getting one is if we force you to, to step away from your life, from things that maybe don't really matter as much as your health. And um, so I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, uh, which means that none of the receptors on the cells um, are activated. And so that can make it one really either really easy to treat with chemo, um, of course, the, the most harsh chemo of them all, um, or, or it may mean it doesn't work and we have to try a bunch of experimental therapies. So the first, <laughs> so getting diagnosed in itself um, was a bit of a travesty. Um, and that's kind of actually the reason why it, breast cancer has enhanced my life's journey so much. So I um, am the daughter of two physicians. My mom is an OBGYN and her mother passed away from complications of breast cancer herself on the second round. Um, through genetic testing, I found out that I actually have great aunts who also died from breast cancer. I had no idea that we had other family members with breast cancer until I underwent genetic testing. Um, and I've now seen actually tons of women on that quick tangent who were adopted um, or whose parents passed away at a young age. And so they'd have no idea what their family history is. That really illuminated how important knowing your family history um, might be in health situations. But in any event, um, I found a lump because I do regular breast exams. My mom taught me when I was a teenager. And um, I just, I felt it. I'm like, this isn't on the other side. There's something wrong. And I had to push um, my healthcare providers to get me in a few days later uh, by, because they weren't going to have anything open for weeks. And I said, I have a lump that could become stage three, stage four in the matter of weeks. I can't wait that long. And luckily they did fit me in. And, um, but, but then thereafter, there were obstacles. I hadn't, usually you undergo an ultrasound first. At the ultrasound, I was told this is probably just a fatty mass. And then I underwent a biopsy is usually the next step. And the interventional radiologist held up the little specimen, which looks like little snakes. <laughs> and he said, these look like fat. And so I was thinking, okay, maybe my instincts are wrong. Maybe this is not malignant. But sure enough, two days later, I get a call from um, my primary care doctor. And she says, I'm sorry to share this, but it is breast cancer. And the bedside manner in this conversation was horrendous. It was like, um, that 10 years ago, this would have been a fatal diagnosis, but not these days. And I'm just sitting there, by the way, in my office with the door closed and the blinds drawn. I had just arrived at work on a Friday. Say she called you with this news. <laughs> I mean, she not called me with this news. She called me on my way to work. And she said, when you get there, give me a call. 
And so I had about 10 minutes in my car alone with my thoughts and just thinking, okay, drive. I would be in a state. It was, it was very strange because I knew it, of course, at that point, it wasn't, it wasn't a good thing, but you're also on a major roadway (laughs) and there's not much you can do. And I just literally ran into my office, closed the door, drew the blinds and got the news. And I just started panicking and crying. Um, but you know, looking in hindsight, it's like, gosh, if I, if I had listened to my doctors every step of the way and felt like, oh, this isn't a big deal. Um, I may have stopped if I was someone else, I may have stopped right then and there and said, well, I don't want to worry about it. They're not worried about it. Um, and instead I felt like I needed an answer one way or another, and that saved my life. So we are really our own best advocates. And I always say women's intuition is never wrong. When was that? What year was that? Um, that was September, 2019. And it was Friday the 13th. Oh my <laughs> gosh. That is, that just gave me chills. That's so I, know. <laughs> I have yeah. chills. Oh, lucky Friday the 13th. Okay. So getting the diagnosis was not easy. I mean, being so young, how old were you again? 34. You were 34 at the time. And of course, being that young, most doctors just kind of, (laughs) they brush you off a little bit, right? They're like, this is probably nothing. You're so young. Um, but it's crazy that you had family history. Did you say it was genetic or no? So interestingly enough, no, I had no known genetic link. Um, and when you sit down with the geneticist, at least my geneticist told me some really interesting statistics, uh, which is that, you know, about 15% of known of cancers have a known genetic link. Um, about, I want to say around 25% is some familial link not known yet because genetic testing is still so new. And then the rest of that is environmental factors. And we can't, you know, say exactly what those are, but that really struck me as a piece of information I would have liked to know before, you know, before my thirties, certainly, and how to minimize the risk, knowing that I had a family history just itself. Um, But yeah, they came back. I did the full like 72 panel and it was all negative. What's neat is that if you undergo genetic testing, you can actually opt in to the database and they add your information to a national database. And that way, if new tests come out that align with your DNA, um, then I I suppose you get updated as to maybe there is a new genetic link. And so I thought, I think that's a really cool, I don't know, option for people who are Yeah. That's an excellent resource for people to know if you're ever wondering, right. Cause it's, and I think that's a big question that comes up for people with me. I actually get messages like this. Are you scared of getting cancer because your mom? And I'm like, no, not really, because it's such a low percentage for genetics. I'm like, typically it is 90%. Well, for all 
degenerate diseases in general, it's like 80 to 90% is lifestyle choices or environment, right? That's all kind of clotted together. So I'm like, I'm not really worried. Of course there is that, oh shit, kind of like factor to it. Um, cause cancer has been in my family for a long time, but whenever you look at it that way, it's like, okay, we can definitely look at our lifestyle choices and make sure that that's in, in check. And then if the 15%, whatever it is of chances of me getting genetic, then I'll, um, I'll, pa- I'll cross that bridge whenever it comes. I'm not going to sit here and stress about it. So, okay. You had triple negative breast cancer at age 34. What happened then? What happened next? Yes. So what they don't tell you, um, is that getting a, ty- a cancer diagnosis, which you know, all too well, Mazina as a caregiver, is a full-time job, (laughs) you launch into the most intense battery of testing you've probably ever had in your whole life combined, like everything you've ever had combined. It's a full-time job just to schedule appointments and then go to those appointments. And you well know, um, maybe not people on your podcast, but I live right near the Mexican border, about 10 minutes Northeast of the main cross uh border exchange and I love it here but it is so far away from my care um which was about 35 minutes one way and that's like without traffic so yeah so I was um commuting downtown at the time pre-covid for work um which in, in itself was about a 30 35 minute drive and then from there another 20 minutes north when I had to like shoot off from work to my doctor's appointments And of course, you're also in this awkward stage of, do I tell my workplace? After a while, it's kind of hard to hide that you are going to doctor's appointments every, almost every day, or you're having to be unavailable for periods of time for blood tests, for scans. And so eventually I had to tell my boss, hey, this is happening. I'm going to go through chemo. And I'm, I, and my doctor is advising, I go on disability, um, which I can talk about benefits and stuff later if you want, but, um, it was, it was just so intense that I knew I'd have to start informing people that were important in my life after I had my port inserted, which is for delivery of chemotherapy. And it goes in your, in your chest, um, I then started 16 rounds of chemotherapy. The first four were every two weeks with a drug called adromycin. Um, You may, if in cancer circles, hear of it as the red devil because it is a bright red solution and it looks terrifying. And I like refused to watch the bag when it was being hung because it literally looks like poison. And that's what it is. What's funny that I found out about chemotherapy drugs is that they're actually (laughs) plant-based, which is so odd to think of a chemical going in and killing things in your body as plant-based, but it absolutely is. Um, And then after four rounds of that nasty drug, I had, um, let's see, another 12 rounds of Taxol. Um, and of course these drugs all come with their really fun side effects, uh, adromycin, um, 
causes like can cause all sorts of like sores and stuff and so you have to chomp on ice which gave me a huge aversion to ice for like the longest time couldn't see it couldn't crunch on it it like made me <laughs> um and then taxol can cause permanent numbness so you have to wear these like cold booties and mittens which again they don't tell you all of this you have to learn it from cancer circles um but you have to wear these cold mittens and booties that like give you frostbite but they work so um after i was done with chemo in march 2020 then i had uh went into i decided to do a double mastectomy because in my case because triple negative is so aggressive and fast growing it reduced my chances of recurrence from about 10-ish percent to something like two or three percent. That was just significant enough to me that I felt comfortable going through mastectomy. And honestly, my husband's not a boob guy. So <laughs> he's, he's more butt and legs. So I thought this is safe territory. Um, there was a complication with my mastectomy. So I actually only had the right side done. Then I had the last side done and Matt in May, I um, had my expanders, which are basically their little tires to make space for your implants. I had those exchanged over the summer and then I had fat grafting, where, which is basically liposuction um, that they inject into your, like the, the chest space that's, that's left. I had that in December. So I was fully done with everything just as of January, 2021. And by the way, I didn't mention, I was stage one. This, all of that I just described was for a stage one diagnosis. I mean, that's the minimum amount of work you have to go through um, or, or that you can go through rather for at least a breast cancer diagnosis. That's why I think early awareness and early detection are so important. Yeah. And let's talk about early detection awareness and stuff like that, because you have a nonprofit and this is something that I've seen you start and just be so passionate about. So do you want to touch on the nonprofit that you have going that you've started? And, and just to, to give credit or credit is due. Um, the nonprofit was started by a dear, dear friend of mine named Missy Peters um, it's, it was named the Breast Cancer Portrait Project. Um, she started this project when she was diagnosed with cancer, um, having found a lump actually during pregnancy and not getting it checked out. Uh, she, she brought it to the attention of her healthcare providers, also at age 34. And, um, but everyone again told her, you're too young and, you know, just watch it. And over her pregnancy, it grew and grew. And she was diagnosed, I think, within days of giving birth. Um, so just imagine becoming a mother and a cancer patient within like the same week, <laughs> right? But it's a nightmare. Um, but she turned that into something that has grown to be such a force for women, young women who's, who, who have felt that their voices are not heard when they tell their healthcare providers that there's an abnormality. Um, when I was diagnosed and I told my mom who was very distraught because we're BRCA negative and she didn't see this coming either. Um, 
she and she as an OBGYN, you know, follows all the data. And she brought to my attention that ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists that promulgate all the guidelines um, for, you know, breast awareness essentially is what they're calling it now. They don't recommend doing breast exams. And I just, I sat there with my mouth gaping open because of course, that's the way I found my lump. That's what saved my damn life. And they're telling providers, don't do them, don't recommend them because supposedly this one study out of China said it didn't reduce mortality rates. And the other reason why is because they ACOG found that there was too many false positives and that women were just too hysterical to handle it. And I'm like, you know what I would get hysterical about is a stage four diagnosis because I was told not to do breast exam. Yeah. Cause I was told to not worry and chill out and not be hysterical. <laughs> I couldn't okay. believe, it. I couldn't believe it. Um, I shared this with Missy and she was aghast. She had never heard this information either. And from that point onward, we worked very closely together to speak to American Cancer Society, um, the National Alliance for Cancer something. I know I'm botching that name, uh, but they actually produced the actual guidelines for um, like Medicare, Medicaid as to what's covered. So of course, you know, the less the less that's covered, the less of the cost to insurance companies. You see where this is going. It's awful that we've compromised the lives of young women, especially, and young men, of course, and their loved ones, um, because we just don't want to pay for it because we're just afraid of false positives in the way that they might impact a woman's psyche. And it's just like, oh, really? You know, come on. This is, this, these are lives we're talking about. Um, so out of, born out of basically that whole issue came this effort to recognize that because breast exams are no longer recommended, um, we have to be doing something else. We have to be educating one another some, some other way. And unfortunately, no one, even physicians, seem to know who that should be and how that should happen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's become a behemoth of an issue for us to tackle, but I feel like it's so important, even though only 5% of us get breast cancer uh, in, in the young breast cancer community, only 5% of us get breast cancer. Um, it, that's a significant statistic. That's, that's still one in 20. Still um, that's still too high. It's still too high. And especially when you don't have any safeguard whatsoever. Mm to say, to educate these women. Um, like if I asked you, Mazina, you know, you're a young, young woman, you're obviously under 40, like me, have you ever been taught about breast awareness in an obstetric appointment? No, it's so funny that you say this. I actually went for like your routine pap test. And I also included, I checked off, I would like a breast exam. And she looked at me whenever I went in there and she's like, you're too young for a breast exam. And I'm only 20, I'm going to be 29 here at the end of April. So I'm only 28 right now. I think I was only 27 at the time, but I was like, I don't know. Like <laughs> she just brushed me off. She's like, oh no, you're too young. Come back in like literally seven years. I'm like, what did she, 
is the breast exam. She did not perform it or did she? She she refused to. Yeah. She just was like, you're too young. And I'm like, well, it's in my, my mom has breast cancer. It's in my family. Um, and she just was like, yeah, she said you have to wait a certain amount of time around whenever my mom was first diagnosed, which I think was like 41. So she's like, you could probably start checking at like, you know, late, late thirties if you want. That was her response to me. Yeah. Go somewhere else. I know. I go. So that's my advice to anyone listening. And if anyone brushes you off for a breast exam, go somewhere else. That is bad news bears. Yeah. That's, that is not, that is a doctor not listening to you and that's their job. Remember you hire doctors. You can fire doctors too. Yeah. Yeah. And that is your life that we're talking about. That's not a, that's non-negotiable. Yeah. Um, Luckily for me, I didn't, I didn't worry. I was like, I just, I don't know. I felt like I was like, I don't have any worries whatsoever, but if, if you have any indication, like any inkling in your body, just figure it out, go find someone that's willing to do it. And even in my last podcast, she was in her sixties and they were telling her, no, no, it's not cancer. It's not cancer. Don't worry about it. And they were refusing to do a biopsy, which is insane. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. So it's, it's very common that people are not being properly diagnosed. And I would rather, um, I would rather be safe than sorry. That's the thing, right? I would be hysterical if someone's telling me no, whenever intuitively I'm like, but it feels like a yes. Especially when you have a family history, yeah. There should be a step up from you're no longer average risk. You now are high, at least higher risk, maybe not high risk, but th- th- that is a perfect example, Mazina, of the reason why this organization exists. From the Breast Cancer Project Project, it was actually rebranded very recently, the Young Breast Cancer Project, because this is an endemic problem. We hear so many young women and, and as you pointed out, older women who are not being listened to. Now, let me say this. There are plenty of fantastic healthcare providers out there. My mom is one of them. She does breast exams at every well woman's appointment. She'll do a breast exam if anyone requests it. Doesn't matter how young. We've had women as uh, young as 16 in the project with breast cancer. So this is not a disease that just touches women over 40, as everyone seems to believe, even even in the um, healthcare community, this is something that touches young women um, and it's on the rise. And it may be perhaps due to those environmental factors. Um, So we have essentially decided to run our own study to determine what are the recent statistics in the US of women who have been diagnosed or delayed in diagnosis because of these sorts of brush offs, um, you know, and, and figure out at least amongst a, sam- a good sample of people. And we'd love to do it cross border too. I mean, this is, we've also spoken to um, partners in, in Canada actually about joint collaborations because any country can benefit from this kind of information and efforts. And what we are also doing is using that data, hopefully to bridge the gap between healthcare providers and women, because statistics are statistics. They don't actually describe what's going on all the time. It's just, you know, one study 
really that everyone's going off of. So we're going to do our own. And we're also going to bring this education uh, opportunity to college campuses. We're going to offer it to primary care physicians, pediatricians, um, you know, outpatient clinics, as well as obstetric providers, anyone who will have us. Um, we're also going to be speaking to medical students because, you know, early education not just applies to the patient population, but also the people that are treating them, right? So instilling the idea that, hey, we were 34 and we have breast cancer. Um, we also know people in their teens with breast cancer. We know people, plenty of people in their 20s with breast cancer. So this is not something that just happens to older people. It happens to young people too. 100%. And, you know, if someone were in their thirties or even, you know, sometimes in their twenties or, you know, younger being the age that you are, like, what would your advice be to someone if they found out of the, they're diagnosed with cancer? What's the first thing that you did or one of the things that helped you the most through this time? Because you're cancer free now. Yeah. I have a, a clean diagnosis. Yes. Thank goodness. Thank you. Um, yes, I got my old clear in April, 2021, 2020, April, 2020, I think. Um, and it's a great feeling. Um, there are, I was very lucky. Let me say I was very lucky because I found it early. Um, it was stage one and it was treatable with chemo. It, it responded really, really well. So I was not in need of radiation either, um, which is something, another step that a lot of cancer patients do undergo because they're advanced stage and there could be cells left behind. So that's what the radiation is meant to zap. Um, and, but when I first got my cancer diagnosis, I just started calling people that meant the world to me that I knew I could trust, that I knew I could confide in and that they would be there for me um, because I didn't want to tell everyone. <laughs> I didn't want um, everyone to know, cause I didn't know how this was going to go. And I wanted to be able to create my own narrative. Um, also know that your body is a wondrous thing and that it can, it's much stronger than you give it credit for. Um, you know, I think in a weird way, this cancer comes to women because we hold so much care in our, in our hearts, in our chest space. Yeah. Um, and, I became very spiritual through my cancer journey, even though I'm, I'm very scientifically based as well. Like I obviously believe in modern medicine. I wouldn't be sitting here. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I believe that there is a mind body connection. That is the reason why I got through this as well as I did. I just believe that my body could, um, and your body can. So there it is. And you had that inner belief, like this inner knowing I can get through this. I will get through this. Right. Yeah. It's underlining. I, I, of course, I'm sure there was doubts that trickled in at some points and there was hard moments where you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but underlining everything at the foundation, there was that knowing of I'm capable of getting through this and it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. And, and look, it wasn't sunshine and flowers. Certainly. Um, I, I don't mean to simplify it or minimize the fear that comes with a cancer diagnosis because that is very, very real but there are going to be so many, so few things you can control through your cancer treatment. And your attitude is one of them. Your attitude and your self-care are the most important aspects that you can control. But, but no matter where you're at, my, 
my advice is that, you know, have that dialogue established with your healthcare providers, make sure that you understand what it is that they're doing and why. Um, my, my, the attitude amongst my healthcare providers was like, do it just like these, this is what we recommend. This is why, like, they kind of answered my questions before I even asked them. And they're like, this is what's going to work for you. Wow. I just was like, great. Put me on it. Like, let's go. For us, it was totally different with my mom. They were like, so we're going to do this. Like, that's literally it. We're going to put you into eight rounds of brain radiation. And then we're going to start you on this oral, ke- oral chemo. And that's it. Here's some pamphlets. Those pamphlets I've never looked at. When they hand me those pamphlets, I'm like, oh, what the hell? Like, this is, this is, I'm not going to read this. Like, you're in the mindset to even like open one of them and confront. No. Yeah, absolutely not. I don't know. It's just something I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is not helpful. No, it doesn't, it doesn't humanize that relationship, which I think no. is so important to have that level of trust. Definitely. In, in when you're going through something that's so traumatic. Yeah. That was actually something I called one of the home care nurses about. And I was like, is there like a therapist that specializes in this type of stuff? Cause I'm not doing okay. Like I was 26 when my mom was diagnosed and I'm like, yeah, my whole life flipped upside down. I had, I lost, like, I had to leave my job and stop everything and just like take her on. But yeah, I was like, is there people that like specialize in this type of thing? And they're like, Oh, uh, that's a weird question. I'm like, how is that a weird question? (laughs) She seems so stunned. And I'm like, wow. Okay. So, you know, uh, support groups are great. I think if you're feeling really alone, if you've got a cancer diagnosis, or if you've had anyone that's been diagnosed with cancer, just seek out cancer groups, the survivors, the stories and follow that little breadcrumb trail. Cause it will open you up. I mean, that's how I found Nicole. It was just these little things. And actually, you know what? I want to talk about brain rewiring eventually, because I think that's a cool way that we met. And that's really honestly looking back, thinking back where my mom was at, she was in a walker. She wasn't doing well. Like, Oh my God, her mindset it was good. It was decent. She had the determination, but like, it was very, sometimes just felt like victim mode a little bit. Right. And that's natural. Um, but whenever she started doing brain rewiring, she ditched the Walker. She got through so much and yeah, let's touch on that a little bit. What was your experience with brain rewiring? I thought that was a really interesting experience. And as someone who actually suffers also from, um, pretty bad anxiety since I was like a kid, Um, it was actually a really cool neurological like experiment, um, to sit there, you know, and imagine sort of these traumatic times sort of in your life as being something completely different and manifesting what it was you wanted for yourself. Um, I, I think, you know, I don't know if the audience knows a lot about brain rewiring. Let's get some brief, brief them up on it. Cause I'm sure not a lot of people have heard about it. I don't think, except unless you like listen to Joe Dispenza, I think he's pretty much the most well-known guy for that, but yeah, let's brief them on it. Right. So we are all sort of running on these brain loops of neurons that we've been developing since, you know, day one (laughs) of life. And it's sort of an autopilot situation until we realize that those can be broken and reformed into different brain patterns to live by. And that's what dictates the way that we interpret our um, external triggers, our thoughts, 
And then of course that translates into our actions. Um, and it's certainly Mazina, you may have a different interpretation of how it came to you, but um, it, it, for me, it really helped me to realize that a lot of the trauma or the um, perspective that you place on yourself and your feelings and the way you perceive the world around you is just in your brain. And it is a physiological process that can be broken and reworked. And it's a very empowering feeling to know that you are in charge of your thoughts and how you manifest the world around you. Yeah. How did it come up for you? Yeah. So this is actually something I teach my clients in um, my program and I call it uh, mental rehearsal. It can be called visualization, mental rehearsal. You guys actually had steps that you went through. You took like certain traumatic things and visualized like dumping them down in the garbage or throwing them off a cliff and stuff like that. I know that that was a bit different for her, but I teach something very similar. And basically the way I like to describe habits, cause I love habits. The psychology of habits is like my jam. That is something I just, I'm so fascinated about and people sabotaging themselves. So when you get into a habit, visualize it as going down a dirt road. And after a while, that dirt road is going to become developed, right? It's going to become, you know, you get the grooves in it. You have the tire grooves. And whenever you've developed a habit so deeply and you try to change that, it's like whenever you turn your wheel to get out of those grooves, it's going to pull you back in. So it's hard to create a new path. It's possible, but it's not always easy. So brain rewiring is something whenever you sit and you literally mental rehearse or visualize yourself being a different person, because the only reason why we don't do half the stuff we know we should be doing is because we don't actually associate. We don't believe that we're that person. We don't identify with that. We uh -huh. identify with being, you know, whatever our habits are that we don't want. We identify with that. Right. So it's kind of this process of pulling yourself out of those habits and you're doing it with your brain, like your thoughts. Cause you can physically go out and you know, um, start walking and become someone that walks or reading. You could become someone that reads and you never did that before. And you could physically develop that habit. However, you can also sit there and visualize yourself doing it and your brain will rewire itself exactly the same amount, you know, and, um, studies have shown that this is incredibly powerful, no matter what way you utilize it. Some people will call it meditation, whatever, it doesn't matter. So that's kind of what brain rewiring is to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's, it is very powerful and I'm always about, you know, evidence-based research and it really, I mean, it really has helped so many people. Um, we met someone with like chronic immune diseases and pain that benefited really from it. And of course, I, how do you think, um, that your mom, Elizabeth benefited from brain rewiring and maybe, oh and maybe why and continues to benefit. Yeah. She, um, I swear she changed completely. It was kind of like this, this feeling that you could observe from the outside, looking in, knowing that she kind of felt helpless and you can sense that in someone that feels helpless. And she was just kind of taking advice from the doctors, putting all of the weight in the world in the doctor's hands, what they were saying. And meanwhile, I was there and I'm like, no man, just do whatever feels good to you. Like, don't listen to them. Like, this is up to you. And it gave, it empowered her. It empowered her to basically be able to have control over her life. And it got so good that even for example, one time she woke up and she 
said in her thoughts as she was waking up, I'm healthy. I'm happy. I am whatever. She had this mantra that she was saying to herself before she went to bed because she was doing brain rewiring and she did that. And oh my gosh, she was dancing around. And they told me that she like, I don't even know. They, they were like, we don't know if she's ever going to walk again. We don't know if she's ever going to grow her hair back again. And that's whenever she started getting really, really good. Like things started going well for us and she started going up the stairs and oh my gosh, it was great. So yeah. And that was all just from her visualizing stuff. (laughs) It was the coolest thing. I remember we get on or she would and say, oh, I walked up the stairs. Oh, we're walking up the stairs every day now. Or yeah, yeah, like no big deal. Like she had always done it. And Mm -hmm. we're all just staring at her just in admiration. And when she, she actually regained her voice for a a good amount of time, Mm -hmm. we just, I mean, I, we all, I think just started crying because we're so overjoyed for her, but also the power of the mind you could you could see it you could see her really transforming just through the short time it was so short and it's so interesting because right around then is whenever COVID hit so she started this program in April and COVID hit around March for us so you know just a couple weeks later they basically shut down all the hospitals if it wasn't necessary then they stopped taking um, patients in physically. So we were doing phone calls with her doctor and three months had passed by and we went in to see the doctor. And I'm telling you, she was on like an oral chemo, like such a low dose that like the doctor was acting like she, she's like, we'll just put her on this medication because like, whatever, she's going to die anyways. Like that was like the vibe that I was getting. Cause it was such a low dose. Right. And we went in three months later physically and my mom's hair was growing back. She was no longer in a Walker. She was stabilized in her weight. Her voice was coming back. It was incredible. And for those of you that don't know, um, my mom was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer and her vocal cords were paralyzed and still are. So it's just part of, they think it's because of the cancer, but we're not quite sure, but basically she can't talk. She just is a whisper. So she started regaining her strength and all this stuff. And the doctor saw her for the first time in three months. And, you know, my mom, I've always allowed her to just make her own decisions. And she made a decision to go on chemo because she saw a friend refuse to do a traditional treatment and die. So she was like, I'm not doing that to you. I'm going to go through the treatments a little up. And so we got to the doctor and we're like, okay, like the chemo must be working. And she straight up told us, she's like, I wouldn't attribute the chemo to this at all. And I was like, well, what is it? And she shrugged her shoulders and she's like power of mind. And I actually got that on video. <laughs> And yes, we were just like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. There, there it is. It's yeah. true. It it's true. I mean, you really do only have control over so much when it comes to a diagnosis like this. Mm-hmm. But what you do have control over as you witness yourself is <laughs> is much more powerful than one might one might expect. Oh, it's crazy. Like even the studies that were shown on our association with food, like they Mm. would have a group of people and they'd have them split up into two groups. One group, they'd have a milkshake and be like, this is a decadent, like heavy calorie. Like you are eating this intense sugar filled, uh, like milkshake. 
here you go. And then they tell the other group this, you won't even believe how healthy it is. It has like no, barely no calories, you know, and (laughs) it's low sugar and it's actually so good, but it's surprisingly extremely good for you. They measured like the reactions on chemical like level, and they had completely different reactions in their body. So your association with what you're doing is so much more important than anyone can really like, it's so crazy. You know, if you already have a negative thought of, uh, this food's not going to taste good or whatever, then that's going to manifest in your body. I would like to be in a study where they just give me a milkshake and measure my brain. So if anyone's (laughs) a a study as uh, such as this, um, sign me up. I love that. Yeah. Um, okay. (laughs) So let me, let me backtrack here a little bit. So other than traditional treatment and pretty much by the sounds of it, you really allowed yourself to put self-care at the forefront. Um, and then a little bit of brain rewiring. Was there anything else that kind of helped you through? Or is there anything else that you did during your diagnosis? Yeah. So I was fortunate enough that I, uh, well, one, I listened to my doctor who said, you need to go on disability because this Mm -hmm. can be, this can wreak havoc on your body and you're not going to be able to perform and brain fog, which (laughs) is funny because COVID is now causing brain fog. And there's this running joke in the cancer community of, is it, is it chemo brain fog or is it COVID brain fog or is it Mm -hmm. both? (laughs) Um, but in, in any event, um, I, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I got a lot, I delved into spirituality during my journey because I had so much time to myself. I didn't want to dwell on, you know, the what ifs, um, meditating regularly. And, um, I had a couple of friends who were in the, we have a very robust spiritual community in Southern California. And so they brought me to a mystic circle, which is, they have a medium there who's like reading for you. And, she was so spot on. She knew nothing about me. She was so spot on about where I was in my journey, uh, what was happening to me. Um, and I met some just incredible people. And through that experience, ended up training to become a Reiki practitioner, um, which is basically just working with energy and energy healing. And I feel like that really helped me get in tune with my own body. Um, and not only that, but I found that it's a way to help people around me. I've now, um, done a few sessions for cancer patients. I plan on volunteering at an infusion center when hopefully post COVID when that happens, but I, I really felt like getting in touch with my spirituality in a healthy way, um, that was on my own terms was important for me to know that there was something that had my back and, um, and that I could take that and use it to do good and help other people when I was on the other side of things. And so that's, what's really been amazing. You know, what's been born out of this whole journey is working with a nonprofit that's going to make a huge difference in the lives of so many people. And also really, I think, enhance the patient provider dialogue and relationship, but also, you know, on this other plane, helping people differently. So I don't know, I found so much fulfillment really from my diagnosis that I didn't expect. Um, You know, and as we spoke about offline, it's, let me just say, 
there's always fear here. Uh, this, trust me, it gets me a lot <laughs> that I'm not safe by any means from recurrence, you know, and as we've seen, as you've seen, it's, it's, it's a real possibility. Yeah. Um, but only so much you can control day to day. And so I think it's really important to remember that you do have so much power in your mind body connection. Yeah, absolutely. This is definitely something that isn't talked about a lot either is the other side of it. What happens after you've overcome this beast, you know, whenever you get diagnosed with it, the doctors are at you, they're prescribing you, you're running around to appointments, you have blood work, whatever, you know, it's just crazy. And as soon as it's gone, it's just like all of that stops and falls away. And then there's no support. And you're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And most people just resume back to the lifestyle that they had before. And, you know, that puts you into risk of reoccurrence, but how are you supposed to know any differently? Because there's no support on that other side of it and there's no one guiding you through that. So let's lean into that a little bit. What is your riff on that? That is an amazing question, Mazina, and it's such an important one. So thank you for asking that. Um, we talk a lot in the cancer community and this goes for any cancer, right? getting on the other side, you don't have your doctors, you know, touching base with you all the time. How are you doing? Hello, how are you? Um, you don't have tests all the time, necessarily. There are still a lot of people who have ongoing scans and they have at least that medical support, but the people also around you, your friends, your family, they think that, well, when you're done, you're done. Like you could go back to normal. Now you don't need me checking in on you. Even if you and still have like, even like with my mom was still had cancer just because she was doing better and well, they're like, Oh, she's in remission. And like, they were just assuming things. And I'm like, no guys, like this, it's still there and well, but well, after this, people are like, okay, everything's back to normal and everything's good. Totally. It's almost like people have an attention span for this that eventually wanes and it can be honestly really traumatic for the patient. Um, and I, I wrote a post way back when I was in cancer treatment and I just said, look, if you're not someone that's genuinely interested in my, in my journey, in my recovery, if you're not someone who's planning to be here long-term for me, who's planning to invite me to dinner, invite me to your birthday party, please don't. I don't, I don't need that kind of fake energy in my life right now. And I don't take any offense if you've been checking in and you all of a sudden stop. If you're that person, I just rather, rather this be a genuine, like, you know, relationship than me feeling like you're just doing it to make yourself feel better. Yeah. It's like, I'm not looking for a pity party. You don't have to support me just because you feel obligated because you feel bad for my situation. You know, um, just, just as long as you're staying consistent, you're not doing this out of a place of almost judgment towards yourself then. And I'm talking about like the other person that's just all of a sudden reaching out and there for you and <laughs> making plans and stuff like that. I get it. It's like, you don't, you get that energy too. Cause you're like, wow, I feel like this person is just pitying me. And that doesn't feel good to anyone. For sure. No, it doesn't. And especially, you know, 
Um, if you had that kind of awareness going through things, which a lot of people don't for good reason, you know, but imagining that, yes, one day I will be on the other side of this. Who do I want there to be there at my celebration? Mm. Like there were people reaching out that I thought, wow, I, I don't really like know this person at all. And I really appreciate that they would think of me, but there is the, this phenomenon of this like rally around effect when someone's a cancer patient and, and it's really, you're right. It's for the benefit of the person reaching out. It's not for the patient's benefit because then you step away as soon as they're, as you perceive that they're done. Mm -hmm. And people who have been through this process, as well as their caregivers like you, Mazina need that support long-term. I mean, forever because never done you. Yeah. So you know that you can like rely on them long-term. That's so important for our mental health. Um, and without it, it's, it can be a very lonely place. It can definitely be a very lonely place, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's a really poignant point to make that it's, it is a lifelong burden that you're stuck with. Um, I mean, I've made lifestyle changes. I, I'm eating a lot cleaner. I'm drinking, you know, I loved my wine. I loved going out and a party girl. <laughs> no, I enjoy life. I don't have no, you yet. just enjoy life. You, you have a lot of friends and you've got some great circles and you're always out and about in events. I think that's honestly another thing that I witness is being part of a culture, being part of a group, a support system, whether they're diagnosed or not, like just keeping life as normal as possible, because even like as a caregiver, I felt like people were just treating me differently because I had this whole new thing. And I'm like, guys, I just want you to talk to me like I'm a normal person. And I don't always want to talk about, you know, whenever they'd be like, how's your mom? I'd be like, I don't know how to answer that. Like, can we just, you know, <laughs> it's like the first thing that'd come out people. So I'm like, can we just act normal? Can we just have fun? Like, and I think that's really important to maintain that and also communicate that to your people that that's what you want. Be like, Hey, just for like a little while, if I see you, I don't want to talk about it or whatever, but anyways, I digress because I'm kind of getting off track here a little bit, but <laughs> it's important uh, to communicate that to your people, what you need from them too, instead of expecting it and wishing that they would be a certain way. Um, and just being able to best way, communicate how to be supported through each layer of this. Absolutely. Yeah. It, the, the communication is so important um, for caregivers or for people that are in the life of someone with a cancer diagnosis. I will say, um, you know, if you're, if you're looking for something helpful to do for someone, simply saying, Hey, I'm sending you food, you know, what are your dietary restrictions or are you craving something or like, honestly, just offering specific like assistance or support instead of saying, let me know if you need anything. Oh my That's gosh. Let, let me not get on. I'm going <laughs> to just tear this apart. The amount of people that are like, and I I'm sorry, if you're listening, if you, you don't know what else to say and I didn't know else, how else to, but yeah, coming from the other side, I can totally understand why people say this, like they're, they want to do something, but when you're in that diagnosis, when you're in that fight or flight, when you're in that state, you literally are like, I am taking every moment as it comes. 
I don't even see the laundry because I'm looking at what's in front of me. I'm not even thinking about that far out. Like I'm not thinking like maybe this evening is kind of the, like the threshold that I'm coming from. So being very specific, like what's your address, I'm going to send you something. And that could be food. That could be like a cleaning service. That could be a nice card. Um, but like anything that's really practical, whenever it comes to like your day-to-day life, I've learned that over time, (laughs) the worst thing that you can say to someone going through, um, this traumatic event, cause anything traumatic is too much, too soon, too fast. And this is trauma that could live in the body and asking them, what do you need is not helpful. And I know for some people, you don't know what else to say, but here we are talking about it. So hopefully this gives you clarity on what to do whenever you're, um, witnessing someone go through this. 110%. Um, I've, I have asked people, you know, if they, if they need specific things, like, um, if all else fails saying, how can I support you mm-hmm. is a good general, at least offer to do something as opposed to, I'm going to put the burden on you to reach out to me when you need something. Cause no, we all feel bad about asking for help. That's does not, does not come naturally. Right. And so at least saying, how can I support you? Like, let's have a dialogue, you know, everyone's different, but definitely putting the burden on the patient is not, not the way to go as best intended as that is. Absolutely. Okay. Let's reverse this just a little bit while we still have a couple more minutes. Cause it's easy for us to be like other people, this is how they should approach us, but how do we ask for help whenever we need it as you know, being me, being the caregiver, you being someone that's freshly diagnosed, that's hard to stage that, you know, we're talking like we're on the other side of this and we know it's helpful and what's not, but how in the beginning could we ask for help? Oh man, that is a great, another great question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, you know, honestly, what you said earlier, I think really brings it back is that you need to develop in some way, shape or form your own, your own method of communication with the people around you and people that love you that are there for you will trust that you're, you know, that, that they're, they know that they're going to be there for you. And it's going to be a difficult ride. So saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to need some help with this, that, or the other, would you be around, you know, at night? Like, can I depend on you? Um, or, you know, Hey, could you check in? Like, could you, a few of my friends would send me really funny memes Mm -hmm. and like, they know I only have like basically three interests, which are like, cats flamingos and like henry cavill so i would just get a running like stream from some people of like memes in those categories or just like funny things i love comedy so um things that made me laugh and took my mind off of what was in front of me like were just really nice free ways um, for people to, to check in. And I knew they were thinking of me and it didn't require a response, but I would ask for things like that. Like, Hey, I'm feeling really down or I'm feeling kind of sick. Like, can you just send me something funny? You know, um, it's, it's, I think that's a really good question, but it's also a really subjective answer because everyone's needs are different and it may be 
Hey, I'm not eating. Like, could you grab me some protein smoothies? Um, or, Hey, you know, I'm not feeling good about where this is headed. Can you, um, offer me some support, just a sounding board, sounding board for me to talk. Um, I, I heard this one really good, like approach to people that are in a difficult situation and they are talking to you is saying, do you need solutions or support? And that way that person can act either as a sounding board or offer comments of like ways they can help or things that that, you know, the patient may, may be able to look into, offer resources. And I think that that's a really good, I think, approach when someone just calls you up or texts you, hey, you know, I'm having a difficult time, then you know what context the conversation's going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, it, I'm not saying that anyone has to send gifts or, or make a monetary donation or anything like that, because I know a lot of people are in hard times right now. Um, there are lots of, again, free ways to do that. And just letting someone know that you're there for them um, is, is sometimes that's just enough people know that they're, there's someone thinking of them. Beautiful. I love that. All right. We're going to end this out because we're running out of time, but I want to ask you one last question. So let's reverse back to 2019, September, when you first got diagnosed and being here now, what would you say to Nicole back then? Oh, Uh, in a weird way, I would say, enjoy every moment, be present. This, you're never going to get the opportunity that you have right now to spend time with yourself, to get to know yourself and to step back from what you think your reality is um, because your reality is going to change drastically for the better. I think that's what I would say. Yeah. There's so many gifts with this and it's, it's interesting talking to so many people now. It's like this awful way of saying it, but it's the craziest blessing in disguise. Um, there's so much more to it and, you know, you wouldn't wish it upon your worst enemy, but looking back, like, would you change anything? Not at all. No. And this actually brings me back to the reason we know one another, our unbelievable support group that we found in one another and um, the other ladies in our, in our forever family um, is that one of us said, I actually breathed a sigh of relief because like, I knew I'd, I'd actually have time to focus on myself. Yeah. And that's such a tragedy <laughs> that like, a cancer diagnosis is what gives you a sense of relief from like your life. But, um, you heard this like resounding, Oh my gosh, me too. And people don't think that way of a cancer diagnosis, as you said, mm -hmm. but that just tells me that we are running on autopilot that we normally in our day-to-day -day lives are under so much stress that we just learn to cope and that that's not okay. So, you know, if you're listening, take some time today, this week, this month to really just step back 
and get out of the trenches of your current reality and focus on something that makes you and only you happy and set a goal that's completely unrelated to your day-to-day life. Like it's, it is worth so much bringing awareness to your life and what it means to you. And that's, I think what cancer has allowed me to do. Um, and I, I think I share that sentiment with a lot of other people in a really odd way. How twisted and crazy that this path has brought us there, but yeah, I love that action steps take inventory of the loose threads that are floating around in your life and just note if they're even essential or not really. Um, and the best perspective to have is if I was diagnosed with cancer and if you are like, what is really, what really matters? It puts you into a place where you're forced to look at that and get real with yourself and real with where you want to be in life. So I appreciate you so much, Nicole. Um, I love you to pieces. I just, I'm so honored that you spent the time with me. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and all of your knowledge. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Before you head off, I'd love to give you a free resource of mine. When my mom was first diagnosed, the only thing I had control over is what I cooked her, but I had no idea what to make. But after a couple years, I've learned a thing or two. So I went ahead and made a quick start recipe guide for anyone that is just looking for the basic first steps that they need to take. This recipe guide includes many different recipes that I use with my mom, I know are extremely healing and also easy to make. So if you want to get this free download, you can just check out the show notes below or go to whatswithcancer.com forward slash quick start guide. That is whatswithcancer.com forward slash quick start guide. And there will be a place where you can just submit your email and it will send straight to your email with about 20 plus variations of recipes that you can start making tomorrow. All right, my friends, I hope you have the most blessed day. We will see you next time.